You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Um, now, Ian's going to come and continue Ephesians. It'll be really good. I'm sure you all agree that the series has been amazing so far. So we'll just pray for him as he comes to come to preach. Father, we, we thank you for Ian's heart. We thank you that it's fully focused on you, Jesus. And we thank you for, for the words that you've given him today, Lord. Would your, would your words go out and set out what you've sent him to achieve, as they always do, Father? Would you mould us to be more like you and, and to um, bring glory to your name, Father, Lord? We pray people will see you through us, Lord. And, and um, we just pray your blessing over Ian as he brings the word. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for the photo shoot, too. We haven't had one of those for a long time, so it's uh, way past time we did that. Uh, and thank you, Merrily and team, for leading us in uh, just beautiful, beautiful worship this morning. It's, uh, it's actually a bit hard to get up and preach after that because it's just so... so um, yeah. Back a bit? How's that? It's just... I don't know, it did stuff inside me and it's hard to get up. And I, I get up now and I think, what I've got to say is insignificant. <laughs> the words in here are significant, but what I've got to say <laughs> doesn't really mu- mean much in comparison to the worship we've just offered up to the Lord. So it's been a beautiful morning already. So anyway, last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 5. Today we're at the final chapter, chapter 6, and... Uh, Last week there were a few passages that caused some arguments, you'll recall, and some criticisms of the Bible, and uh, people read and think that uh, the Bible is a, a sexist and uh, patriarchal document that, that uh, only wants to keep women oppressed, and, um, and it, there's plenty of stuff in, the, in there that doesn't go down very well in modern society, and there's some in a few verses in uh, chapter 6 this morning that are much the same. Um, but I hope last week you got a greater understanding, especially about how marriage is actually a picture of the gospel. That, uh, that, that was really the thing I'd hope to get across more than anything, that earthly marriage is a picture of the gospel of Christ and his bride being joined together. And it's a preview of eternity. Earthly marriage is a preview of eternity. So anyway, let's get into chapter 6. In verse 1 it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Why should children obey their parents? The obvious thing is because God has commanded it. That's the the first reason. And one of the other reasons is because children obeying their parents, parents mirrors the pattern we've seen right through Ephesians of submission, of husbands and wives submitting to each other. And we will see, as we continue in chapter 6, more about submission. Obedience is part of what it means to live rightly as people of God. It's obedience to those who are in authority over us, whether they be parents, whether they be our bosses, whether it's the government. We are to be in submission to those who are over us. One author has said, 
uh, about this particular verse that we should not be surprised that in a world that has turned its back on God and is dead in sin, that this model of children being obedient to parents will have been distorted. Paul reminds us elsewhere that the disobedience of children was and is a sign of the terrible times of the last days. So it really shouldn't be a surprise that we see gangs of children bashing and robbing and hijacking cars. But even though this passage is directed primarily to children, we only have a couple of children here with us this morning, it's relevant for all of us because all of us are actually children of someone. Many of us still have parents that are alive so you still have parents to obey but those parents of course are fallen people just as you are just as I am they didn't always get everything right some people have a better upbringing than others and uh, some parents are better than others and some parents are a better picture of the fatherhood of God than others And we need to, those who may not have had such a good uh, upbringing, need to extend some grace towards their parents. Because it may be that their parents didn't have a good example themselves. It may be that they learnt parenting by violence. It may be that this young man we prayed for this morning has only experienced that in his own household. That's tragic and it's heartbreaking. And that's the reality of a fallen world that we live in. Some parents are great parents and they're a great picture of the gospel as well. We need to, at the very minimum, recognise and honour the fact that our parents are responsible for our existence. They poured time, love, energy and hundreds of thousands of dollars into our upbringing and our education, even if it's not a perfect uh, parenting example, even if we didn't have a perfect childhood, we need to at least honour that and respect them for that. But we shouldn't give them unquestioning obedience. Even though Paul says, obey your parents, it shouldn't be unquestioning. Because we have a primary allegiance to Christ. Should our parents ever do anything or expect anything of us that is illegal or sinful and we said much the same about wives submitting to husbands last week. If parents expect children to do sinful, degrading, illegal, humiliating, whatever it may be, things, our first allegiance is to Christ. We have to obey him, not the parents in that situation. But we can still learn from ungodly examples of parenting. You read through the Bible and you see ungodly examples of life. David with Bathsheba, for example. We are to learn from the bad as well as the good. We we know a young man who was brought up in a household filled with violence. The father uh, was frequently either drunk or stoned and uh, didn't know how to manage rage and took it out on his wife and the kids. And this young man, you would expect, would grow up much the same way, but he's an outstanding father to three sons now because he's learnt what not to do from his father and made a decision, I will not do that to my kids. And he's a fabulous father 
to his children now and husband to his wife. But he learned from a bad example. We can do exactly the same. Now I mentioned also, we get to verse 4, I mentioned last week that women in ancient cultures had little value. A woman was considered the property of her husband or her father, if she wasn't yet married, who could treat her in any way he wanted to. She had less value quite frequently than the man's livestock. But the gospel liberates women from that. The gospel shows the value of women as created in the image of God. And the gospel says that wives are not inferior to husbands, but husbands are to love sacrificially their wives, lay down their own lives for them. The same principle of ownership and lack of value also applied in these cultures to a man's children and his slaves. Father had the right to enslave his own children if he wanted to. He had the right to force them to work. The father had the right to kill his children for disobedience. And in some cases, if a child was disobedient, the father was expected to kill him to to, uh, protect his own honour. That's horrific in our culture. But it was the way things were in ancient culture. In virtually every ancient culture, the father or the, the husband was the head of the home and his word was rule and no one, not friends, not family, not police, would stop him. He could kill his children for disobedience. That's shocking to us, but the Paul's instruction to fathers would have been actually no less shocking to the Ephesians because of that context. He says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In a culture where the head of the household has complete and total rule over his family, that would be strange teaching. Do not exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger. Treat your children with respect, with love, with gentleness. That was unheard of in those cultures. Our daughter has written something on this verse and on this subject, and I think her insights are worth sharing. I told her I was going to steal this and because it's so good. She says that discipline is exerting authority over your child by applying a consequence for their behaviour, and discipline is action-orientated. That makes sense. Instruction, she says, is a relational connection and is an explanation of how to live because we want our child to do well. These go hand in hand, and godly spiritual parenting is the perfect balance of these. Exasperation in our children is produced by arbitrary parenting, that is, too much discipline, and or unsympathetic parenting, that is, no instruction. She goes on to say that if we only discipline discipline our children without instruction, we're making an idol of ourselves. I thought that was an interesting thought. What what we're teaching the child then is, I am God and I am the rule. You do what I say. The end result, if we do that, will be many Pharisees. There will be obedience on the outside, but rebellion on the inside. The other side of the coin, though, is all instruction with no discipline makes an idol of the child. You are God and I will do what you want. And that's rampant 
in our society now. It teaches the child that rules and respect don't matter. It tells the child that sin has no consequences. What a terrible message to be sending to our kids. Godly parenting matters because through godly parenting the gospel is revealed. It's revealed just like it is through godly marriages. So fathers and those who will be fathers in years to come, no matter how busy we are, we must be involved in the discipline and instruction of our children, training them up for life and for godliness. Mum might spend more time at home with your children than you do, and you might be a busy man. But at the end of the day, you are the one who will be held responsible for the spiritual growth and maturity and health of that child. Don't provoke your children to anger. Verse 5, Paul says, Bond servants, and many translations put that, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, whether he is a slave, or whether he is free. The lot of a slave in ancient society was not always bad. It commonly was. But there were some slaves that were parts of the family and their job was to teach the children and to care for the family generally. Some were employed as doctors in the family. They're the lucky ones though. They were treated with care because they were considered to be valuable property and they were property. They were owned. Even the ones who lived like family members were still property of the master. But for most slaves, life was brutal and brutally short. You've watched plenty of movies of gladiators in the arena, slaves being sent in there to fight to the death. Human life had very little value in those ancient societies, and especially in Roman society. In Roman society, power was everything, and slaves were the most powerless, and therefore the most worthless. Slaves worked the mines, slaves rode rode the ships, Slaves did anything that a civilised person wouldn't do. And uh, uh, there's a particular caste of people in India who would be probably a modern equivalent of that. They're the ones that clean the sewers and things like that because they're the lowest of the low in society. Slaves were often used for sporting entertainment, the ancient equivalent of going to the footy match. Except in this instance, the slaves would be expected to fight to the death to entertain a bloodthirsty crowd. Slaves were the lowest of the low. There's a couple of interesting things we see in these particular verses in light of what we know about ancient slavery. And one is that there are obviously slaves present in this Christian church. And they're not present there just as servants for the master. They're present as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Another is that Paul doesn't insist that they find ways to escape their master or seek their freedom. He says nothing about that. He does address elsewhere the opportunity for freedom and says if you can gain your freedom, go for it. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Paul's much more concerned with their heart than with their circumstances, as the Bible is with us. Much more concerned with our heart than with our circumstances. And Paul insists that slaves should obey their masters if they were obeying the Lord directly. Obey them sincerely from the heart and not putting on a front to impress others while secretly rebelling. And Paul says that one day their sincere obedience, their obedience from the heart as to the Lord will be rewarded by the Lord. Brought into a modern context, this obviously applies to us as employees and our work ethic, the way we go about our business at work. Most of us work for a boss here, so it's relevant for virtually all of us. If you happen to be the boss, your turn is coming in a minute. One down the back there. Our attitude to our work matters. Whether we're doing our dream job or whether we're slaving at a job we despise, our attitude matters. It matters how we approach it. It matters how we serve our boss. You might think you're only serving an earthly boss and therefore it doesn't matter, but the Bible says you are really serving Christ. You are serving the big boss. Your service is not meaningless. It's not wasted because you're serving as unto the Lord and anything we do to the Lord will be rewarded. Paul then goes on to address the bosses in verse 9 when he says, Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Boss man, don't imagine that because you're wealthy and powerful, that God must like you more than he likes the lower ones in society. Don't kid yourself that your position in society is proof that you are blessed by God more than your workers are. There is no partiality with God. He doesn't look at mankind and prefer the wealthy over the poor. He doesn't prefer the powerful over the weak. He doesn't prefer the famous over the voiceless. In fact, you don't have to read very far in the Bible and especially in the Gospels to see that it may be the other way around. God seems to have a heart for the weak, the poor, the voiceless. So if you're in a position of leadership over others, whether you're an employer or a manager or even a parent, treat those under you with honour and respect and dignity, and especially if they're fellow Christians. Because it's not our position in society that determines our identity. It's our relationship to Christ. We see that in the next passage, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is probably the most famous passage in Ephesians, this one. The armour of God. Everyone knows about it. And Paul begins with a sit rep. You know what a sit rep is? A situation report. It's a, it's a report that advises an army on the current military situation that they face. So Paul gives us a sit rep. And he tells us that we have a genuine enemy. A spiritual enemy. He tells us that this enemy is at war with the church and with us. He tells us that our battle is a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. Paul makes that point clearly. Ultimately, our battle is not against unbelievers in the world. The unbelievers are just pawns in the devil's strategy. They might be willing pawns, but they are still only pawns. They are not the leaders. They are not the strategists of this battle. We're at war with the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We're at war with the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's at least one reason why trying to impose Christian morality and values on society cannot work. You cannot force people to be Christians. Because they're they're only the troops, they're the soldiers in the ranks. They're not the ones making the strategy. If you want to win a war, you have to overpower the leadership. And I might remind you that Jesus has done just that. And he did it on your behalf. He did it on my behalf. So even though he has won the war, though, we still have mopping up battles to do. After every war in history, there's mopping up battles. There was, I remember reading, I think it was back in the 70s, about a Japanese soldier that was in deep, dark jungles of somewhere in New Guinea or something like that, that was still shooting at the white man because he didn't know the war was over. In the 70s. Yeah. In the, I think it was the 70s, yeah. yeah it was the 70s, he didn't know. <clears throat> Hmm. Yeah. So they're still mopping up battles and that still happens even though Christ has won the victory. So we still have an enemy that wants to inflict maximum damage while he still can. His most successful strategy is deception. It's really his only strategy. It has been from the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? The devil is a liar and the father of lies, Jesus said. So the first weapon we have to use against the devil, therefore, must be truth. Their strength must be found in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Paul says here. It's not our own strength. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not worldly. But what are they? They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's 2 Corinthians 10.4. Paul's using military language here and military ideas because he wants us to know that we are in a very real battle. And it's a battle to the death. 
But I think he's using it for another reason too. I think he's using the, ang- uh, the language of army so that we understand that we can't fight this battle alone. No army can be successful if it only sends people out one by one into the battlefield to fight on their own and without supply lines. You cannot win. Every army has squads, platoons, brigades, companies, everything else, and they're all trained up, as Ephesians 4 told us all about, trained up, and they're sent into battle with fellow troops. We've seen this idea of unity all through Ephesians, of the church, of people, dissimilar people coming together all the way through Ephesians. And we need to see it here as well in the battle. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it until I die probably, the church needs you and you need the church. Now we get to verse 13, we look at the, uh, the pieces of armour. Some of the pieces are defensive, some are offensive. Some parts are for protection, some parts are for attack. But we need all of it because Paul says, therefore take up the whole armour of God. Not just the bits you like or the bits you understand. Take up the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the build of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I've always been challenged by the way Jesus faced off against the devil when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Every temptation the devil brought, Jesus had the same answer. It is written. It is written. It is written. Every time Jesus was challenged, he went back to the word of God. Every time. Every time he responded with truth. Notice Jesus didn't respond to the devil with, I kind of feel like that's not right. It's not quite the vibe of that. I kind of feel like Jesus might have known what he was talking about when he said, it is written tells me something about the power of the word of God when we face temptation, when we face trials, when we face battle. tells me something about the power of the word of God to overcome the enemy, whether that enemy be brutal attacks from outside or whether it be from within, sin rising up and thoughts, unclean thoughts and things like that. It tells me something that this word has power to defeat it. If it was the tool that Jesus found sufficient to fight off the devil, I have a sneaking suspicion that we might find it sufficient as well. 
because the power of the enemy lies only in his power to deceive us. There's no other power he has over us as Christians. No other power, only lies. But every time he convinces us that his lies are true, we face defeat. He convinced Eve and Adam and we've suffered the consequences ever since. If he can convince us, we face defeat every time. It's one of the reasons why I so frequently stress the sufficiency of this word of God. The necessity of knowing this word if you hope to survive and even to thrive in the battle. It's why it is so important that we get God's word into us, that we feed on it regularly, that we're washed by it frequently. Remember, we're in a war. We're in a relentless war. We're in a war that won't finish until we die or Jesus comes again. Don't get ideas that you'll be able to use this once or twice and the battle will stop. It will continue. You will never in this life be out of that war, be saved entirely from it. So Paul starts off with a breastplate of righteousness. Where's our righteousness to be found? Not in ourselves, is it? It's not in our good behaviour. It's not in our good attitudes. It's not in our hard work. It's not in being better than that other person. It's not even in being better than I was myself yesterday. All of that is self-righteousness. It's all stained by sin and greed, rebellion, corruption. Rather, when we get saved, the Lord takes away that self-righteousness and he exchanges it for a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That's something worth wearing a breastplate to protect. Breastplates are designed to protect your vital organs, in this case, the heart. And when you're born again, God takes out that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And he declares you righteous in his sight. This breastplate is meant to protect that, that we never, ever fail to understand their righteousness is in Christ. Because it's only then that we can say with full assurance, if God is for us, who can be against us? You can stand firm if you know that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? It's God who justifies. It's God who declares you righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When you understand that righteousness, you can stand in the face of anything. But we need to understand that to wear that breastplate. 
And then Paul goes on to tell us about the shoes of the gospel of peace. Isaiah wrote in chapter 52 verse 7, and actually a lot of this imagery comes from Isaiah. But Isaiah wrote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. If you're soaking in the bathtub at the end of a long, hard day on your feet or relaxing in front of the telly, you probably don't have your shoes on at the time, do you? You've kicked them off to relax and unwind. But when you want to embark on a journey, when you have a war to fight, when you have a job to do, one of the first things you do is put your shoes on. Because you can't go to war in bare feet. If you've seen movies or read stories about the First World War and the horrors of the trenches, one of the things that they fought as much as the enemy was the damage done to their feet from being in the mud and the slush all day long, even with boots on. And then in the winter when it froze and they would get gangrene and lose their feet. Our feet need to be protected. It's why we need to put these shoes on. Those of us who know this good news have a message of salvation to take to others, to enjoy ourselves, but to take to others as well. It's a message that our God reigns, that he wins, this, he has won this battle, he will win this battle. And every time we deliver that message to someone else, we push the enemy back just that little bit more. And we proclaim that the Lord has already won. And Paul goes on to the shield of faith and says that this shield of faith will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. How many of them? All of them. Not just some of them, all of them. What are these flaming darts? Doubt, accusation, confusion, attacks on your thought life, attacks on your righteousness, Attacks on your identity in Christ. Attacks on your Bible reading and your prayer life. There was a poet in the 16th century that said that uh, the buzzing of a fly can distract us from prayer. That's how hard prayer is. (laughs) To pray is a war we have to fight. How true is that? How easily do we get distracted in prayer? The Roman army actually has a good illustration for this particular piece of armour. The shield that they carried in the battle wasn't one of the little round ones the gladiators used in the Colosseum. It was a large rectangular shield about the size or near enough to the size of their whole body. It was made with wooden planks. It was covered with leather. And if they were attacking a walled city, they would soak the leather in water, make it nice and wet, and then the whole platoon or whatever it was would get, would assemble in their ranks, lift their shields over their head like the shell of a tortoise and they would advance on that city and the, the enemy would be up on the top of the walled city shooting down fiery arrows trying to stop them this is the imagery Paul's using here, the fiery darts 
fired down on the enemy. But this shield of faith, in the Romans' case, this shield would extinguish the fiery darts and protect them. And the whole of the platoon was covered by it. It's not only a great illustration, but it's great in that it fits in beautifully with the whole idea we've seen in Ephesians of being one body, working and walking together in our calling. When we join together with other believers, we not only have more strength for the battle, we have more protection in the battle. That's why people abandon the church and say they're still Christians, but you can see by their lifestyle they're not. They have no interest in the things of God anymore. Whenever the enemy shoots his flaming darts of condemnation or shame or unworthiness or judgment at you, you should turn to the finished work of Christ in faith. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no shame for those who are in Christ. It doesn't matter what fiery darts the enemy shoots at you. There is none of that for those in Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says. Faith is the confidence that God is faithful, not that I am faithful. Faith is the assurance that he is true to his word, not that I'm able to keep his word. Faith is knowing that he has already won this battle and he's done it on our behalf, that he is ready, willing and able to save us now and to keep us to the end. When you have that sort of confidence, there's no fiery dart the enemy can shoot at you that can knock you down. Then there's the helmet of salvation. The enemy wants to attack our thoughts and our knowledge of truth. He wants us to doubt our salvation. He wants us to lose confidence in the power of the cross to save. As I've said, Jesus has already won that victory. When we don the helmet of salvation, we acknowledge that the victory has been won, that the Lord himself has won it on our behalf. Then we come to the only properly offensive weapon in the armour, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. All the others are primarily for protection, although they are used in an advance on the city, as the shield of faith is. But swords are designed specifically for attack. Remember Jesus defeated Satan with the word of God. It is written. The Bible's powerful, not because it's a book of charms and incantations and mystical things. It's powerful because it's the very word of God. This is what God says has happened, will happen. And when God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. There's no question about it. He guarantees what he says will happen. My word, he says in uh, is that Isaiah fifty five eleven, my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It's a guarantee of God. That's why this book is powerful. That's why the sermons you hear when you come here are so heavy with scripture. It's not my funny stories or interesting illustrations that will help you fight this battle. It's the words in this book 
and it's the author of this book. It's the most powerful weapon we have as a church and that we have as individual believers. Paul says in verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is our direct line of communication with our Commander-in-Chief. No army has instant and unrestricted access to their leadership, their generals, like we have. At the mere thought, we have communication with our leader. Paul tells us then to keep in constant communication with our commander, praying at all times, he says. And he tells us to pray about everything. That means the little things as well as the big things. Now, prayer is not really part of the armour of God, but it's still a powerful weapon. So Paul tells us to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Paul wants us to be persistent in prayer for all the saints. Not just for ourselves or our family, which is who we usually pray about. Sometimes we'll be persistent in prayer for our church or sometimes other churches. But we're to pray for the believers overseas as well. We're to pray for the persecuted church in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Colombia. We're to pray for complacent Christians in Australia and the United States and Europe. We're to pray at all times, making all supplication for all the saints, wherever they are. When we pray like that, we're praying in the Spirit because we're praying about the things the Holy Spirit told us to. And while we're at it, Paul says in verse 19, Pray for me also, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may, I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul asked for prayer that he might boldly proclaim the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not the funny stories again that I tell. It's not the interesting illustrations Mike has when he's preaching. They're not the power of God to salvation. The gospel is. The gospel is. That's why we need to pray that the gospel will be spread, that doors will be opened, that we will be bold in preaching it. Nothing will push back the enemy more effectively than the clear and bold declaration of the gospel. I wonder how often most of us pray that we would boldly declare the gospel, even if it results in prison chains. So we get to verse 21. Paul's winding up his letter now. And he says, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother, And faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. There's that mutual 
love for each other, supporting and encouraging and submitting to each other. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So we come to the end of this very quick overview of the book of Ephesians. Quick in that we've done one chapter at a time, not very quick in that each message goes forever it seems. But Paul finishes off in a similar fashion to the way he opened the the letter up and he opened it in verse 2 with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Much of this letter you might notice has been about grace that we've received as believers and much of it has been about the peace that we now have with God and therefore with each other. Ephesians is a deeply profound book. When I started this I told you that I often prescribe Ephesians as medicine for whatever ails you spiritually and I still stand by that the knowledge of what God has done for you and done in you and will continue to do what he wants to do through you are foundational things for surviving this war and coming out victorious at the other end Paul said in Ephesians 5.16 that we live in evil times surrounded by darkness so it's becoming increasingly important that we're able to stand strong as lighthouses in that darkness those who don't know their position and security in Christ won't get through without significant damage and their light won't shine for long there's something that surprised me been working through this, something I hadn't noticed in all the times I've read Ephesians. It's just how much emphasis there is in Ephesians on our place and our role in the church as a body, as a bride, together. I'd never really noticed that in the past, but it's all the way through it. I've been a strong advocate of Christians being an active part of the local church you've heard me many times say if you leave this church get to another church that preaches Christ do not sleep in on a Sunday morning get to church uh, I've told you my story how that saved my life getting to church when I didn't want to go to church because I heard the words of life so I've, uh, it breaks my heart, as I've said many times, to hear of people that, uh, that abandon church. And it breaks my heart to hear of this church we prayed for this morning up at Belgrave that's going through such difficult times because the church is where the words of life are and where we encourage each other, where we support each other, where we strengthen each other, where we challenge each other, where we grow together. Paul stresses over and over again in this book the necessity of getting connected to each other and staying connected to each other. We're in a very real battle. It's a battle that will continue till the day we die or the day Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead and take us home with him. So it's vitally important that you understand what God has done for you, what he is doing in you, and what he will continue to do. Ephesians is a fantastic book to tell you that stuff.
It's vitally important that you understand the weapons we have to fight with. Do you know them? Do you know how to use them? It's vitally important that we know the position of strength that we operate from. Is all your trust in Christ to protect you, to strengthen you, to equip you, to keep you? It's vitally important that we stick together. That we help and encourage each other. Are you committed to the local church? Are you encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you helping them to stay the course? I hope you are. If you're not, you need to read this more than you know. You need to get it into your spirit. You need to meditate on it. You need to pray about it. You need to study it because it's a life-giving and a life-saving book. Thank God for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much in this book that we haven't properly understood. Our security in Christ, our seat in heavenly places, our unity in the church, the body and the bride of your Son, the importance of living in peace with each other, the importance of loving each other, the need to become mature and active in service to you and to your church. The victory that was won on our behalf on the cross by Jesus Christ. The armour that you, Lord, provide us with to survive and to thrive on this battlefield. Help us, Lord, to understand these things. Help us, Lord, write them on our heart, write them on our minds. Then, Lord, we will finally be the lights that you have created us to be in this dark world. Then, Lord, others will see your light, the light of your gospel, and come seeking Christ themselves. Lord, would you do this work in us? Would you do this work in our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in all the churches across this nation, Lord? Would you do the work of writing the truths of Ephesians on the heart of your people? We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.